Greetings and peace be upon you. The following is a conversation with Mats Lekander, who is a professor working at Karolinska Institutet and Stockholm University in the field of psychoneuroimmunology. And it was an honor for me to be able to speak with him. So do you think that we can link behavioral and biomarker data in some framework to derive a bioinformatical fingerprint or biomarker of well-being? Yes, I think so in principle and in the future. It should be noted, however, that it's extremely complex, of course, and that we so far know almost nothing in this sense. We have very little actually knowledge on processes that underlie the feeling of well-being. Of course, we know something about reward system, etc. We know something about being afraid or having high anxiety, but well-being is both something that you can experience in the moment, and for this maybe we in the future can have good biomarker data or new ways to analyze brain function to say something about. But if you look on well-being in the longer term by being satisfied with, with your life, feeling that you're at the right place, that you have this eudaimonic kind of well-being, um, then I am quite pessimistic. Mm-hmm. It should also be noted that for, for psychiatric diseases, we have in its true sense, uh, almost nothing to come with on biomarkers. It's, of course, markers of processes that are relevant for a, a psychiatric function or a psychiatric disorder, so that we know something about, let's say, an immune process or a brain process that is relevant. But a marker that indicates that you suffer from something, there we have almost nothing at the moment. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I know that this isn't your expertise, uh, but uh, with the developments in uh, in natural language processing, do you think that we we could link data from applying a natural language processing system, such as maybe GPT three or any other way of analyzing, for example, uh, behavior through social media? Do you think that that could be? Uh, you know, linking that data with uh, biomarker data could could be a step forward, or do you think that we need a, some other step? I probably know too little, but it sounds not reasonable to me. Okay. That's my my uh, uh, a, a guess, an estimation. Right. Okay. So, to which extent do you think that there is consensus on how health is defined and quantified? I mean, in some time, in in some aspect, it is a consensus on on uh, definition of health because people often refer, at least, to the WHO classical definition of a state of complete satisfaction or well-being in terms of of like a physical, uh, a, a mental and a social well-being, and that you have reasonable good functioning. Uh, so that definition, which is actually from the 1940s, is very often used. So on, on the superficial level, the, the topographical level, we have some consensus on it. But if you take it one step further, we are not applying at least definitions in a coherent way, because often the social or mental aspects are played down or not taken into account. Hmm. 
uh, I mean, in terms of uh, organization of healthcare, for example. Uh, so it's it's changing slowly, but but I mean that definition of health from the WHO is actually close to the also classic uh, biopsychosocial model by Engel. For example, so so I mean it it includes these different aspects, and that they should be included in a reasonable definition of health that is quite clear from from everybody at least uh, at least what they say. So that is what I would would argue. Uh, so and regarding quantification, uh, no, we don't. We we are not. I mean, we have so we have. Of course, a very large amount of health indicators, and I mean these are you have many hundreds, of course, of them. And if you look on biobank data, that tries to collect all health indicators they can think of. It comes up to several, several hundreds from blood variables uh, over to what you get from the anamnestic interview to general questions about feelings and well-being. So that is one thing that is tricky in that way. Uh, in a standard healthcare examination, you have, of course, some things that are most often, I think, coming up regarding like uh, measures of the body or like BMI, for example, but also uh, heart rate, uh, blood pressure, uh, certain kits of biomarkers that would indicate proper liver functioning or or whatever. Uh, so, so there, of course, you have kind of factors that often turns up. But what is interesting here is that if you skip all this, this uh, the details and the biomedical or the objective measurements, and you go for subjective measurements, there is one really often used one, and that is just uh, self-rated health or subjective health. And there are questions like, how would you rate your general health is often used. And then the person just uh, turns whatever she wants to into the definition and rates then her, her health on a scale that could be like five, uh, with uh, five, five response alternatives, for example. So then you just do the interpretation yourself and you respond then that it is uh, neither good nor bad, for example, or rather, rather good. And that is often a strong, and actually often the strongest predictor of mortality in large scale studies. So it's a little bit the opposite, let the person brain do the work and uh, get data together the feeling in the body uh, if i know about the diagnosis perhaps the the how long my parents lived or what i expect for from life uh, how my health behaviors are my social networks all these things can be then uh, put together in one single measure which is a strong uh, predictor of many objective health outcomes. Mm. So would you say that it's overrated or to overcomplicate things with, with uh, and that it's sometimes better to just ask someone what they think about their health? 
It's not better, but it's really important to do that because all people with poor objective health outcomes or measures are not always responding that their health is poor. And people that seems to be really healthy often, or quite often actually, responds that their, their health is poor. Uh, so, and uh, then the question can be like an additional markers because it's actually collects, it's integrative in that way that it collects different kinds of information and can say something else as compared to the more scattered measures of whatever uh, blood samples or, or measures, etc., can do. So that can be a warning signal. It can be used as a cheap outcome because it's easy to track, it's important. It's important for people and well-being. So it can add something to the whole equation, I think. So when asking someone how, how they would would say that their health is, how would you, because it's not really the easiest of things to ask someone about their health. Some people respond to the same question in very different ways. So a pain, the same pain would be, a four on a scale one to ten for one person and a five for someone else. So you know, how, how do you have any thoughts on how to best ask that question? Yes, because it's really uh, I argue on the opposite that it is really easy. It is easy to to put this question to someone because the whole point is that the person would do the interpretation and actually put forward things that are important for them into the equation so we wouldn't know exactly what they respond on like the, the what they actually base their rating on but we would know that they would rate something that is important for them and that actually is related to to sickness outcomes to to healthcare consumption and right. sick leave and morbidity and mortality so so it's easy in some ways it's easy for we forget all the equations that are put probably active behind the final rating. So it's tricky in that way. And it, it really annoys people sometimes to hear about things that where we don't know uh, <laughs> what we are doing. But it's, it's, it's important. And it's also a big movement towards actually capturing health outcomes that come from the patient. Mm, the right. big movement to, to move towards health uh, patient-related uh, outcomes. And the health rating is one of these important outcomes. Hmm. So speaking of the feeling of being healthy, to which extent would you say that illness advances via socioeconomic structure? And to what extent uh, do you think that health intervention has to be interdisciplinary? And which disciplines would you include? Mm, yeah, that's a good, but also tricky question. But the, the first thing, if they have to be interdisciplinary, I'm very sure that they don't need to be, they don't have to be interdisciplinary. I mean, if you, because, and the reason why I say that is, is because we can just list uh, successful interventions that are not multidisciplinary. Uh, and I mean, uh, some uh, medical treatments um, could, at least in theory, I don't argue that a medical practitioner should be only biomedical. But if you think of some treatments uh, correcting some obvious imbalance, they could be kind of unidisciplinary. We could also think of actually a lot of uh, psychological treatments that are successful 
and not really uh, multidisciplinary. I mean, uh, trying to change a person's behavior so that they will reduce anxiety, which is problematic, for example. Then, of course, you could argue, you could argue against me now and say that, yeah, but the person could be uh, having a heart problem, not an anxiety problem, and uh, misinterprets the bodily signals. And then I would argue that that would be wise, of course, to include healthcare in that case. But if you look on the treatment itself, it can be unidisciplinary and still uh, mm. effective. I think on a larger perspective, I mean, in, in real life, uh, uh, working in an interdisciplinary way is important uh, because in reality, things are not that easy, that there are like single entities uh, of illnesses that are not co comorbid with other troubles. And these troubles seem to span over different aspects of life. So they can be social, impacting your social life, for example, or they, uh, they, are, they may be purely medical in terms of the, you don't need psychology to understand uh, for example, a, a broken leg, but getting back the person to uh, fully working, the rehab process may involve psychology for motivation, for pursuing training programs to uh, stick to the, the ordination or the prescriptions by the doctor, etc., or the social worker, or whatever. Then in practice, we, we, we need this interdisciplinary aspect. Right. So you mentioned before that psychiatrists don't really have any good or reliable biomarkers to, to measure and look at. And um, so uh, there has been a trend of, of psychiatrists particularly using mathematics. So I once listened to a TED talk by uh, Lawrence Amstel, who works at Columbia University, and he uses decision theory and game theory and behavioral economics. So he, he makes like decision trees and tries to, to use that to treat anorexia. And then we have people like Carl Fristen who, who works on his stuff. So mm -hmm. we, what do you think about, and in the UK, we, uh, they have uh, this subspecialty called Lisa Psychiatry also, where they, they are quite kind of a link between the somatic and the, the, the psychological side of things. And they work, work on the awards, you know, in the ER. Do you think that we, need, we should have more uh, that kind of uh, a role for psychiatrists in Sweden as well? The last question about the Asian psychiatrist, I'm not really that knowledgeable about that, but it sounds like a good idea to bridge you know, like more somatic care and, and the more psychiatric or psychological care. And I, I, as far as I understand it, at least from my reading, it's uh, quite a, kind of a big gap in the UK between this kind of cares in uh, if you look in Sweden, uh, I my guess is that the, the gap is not that big. Like for example, in primary care, that you have a little at least closer connection between people working with uh, with the more psychiatric or behavior or mental aspects and the somatic care. But that's the dream world. I, I agree. It's it, there is a gap, and if the Asian psychiatrist would be the solution. I, I'm not the man to tell, I'm sorry. Right. Um, 
Okay. I mean, but I can I can generally just state that I think that interdisciplinariness is is like good to to. I mean, what we often the gaps we take can often be uh, actually fueled or inspired by other disciplines because I think that problems or solutions uh, often I think the patterns of these often uh, show up in different connections. So having a new slant of like, for example, what helps people change behavior in economics may be an effective way to change behavior in, in a non-economical context, for example. Mm. So, so taking knowledge, I think that we're, because we're stuck into this uh, standard thinking, often we can just look on how, how uh, what is the understanding of a certain problem and then we try to apply the same kind of solution and to see if for example biology biology has provided a similar circuit in another area of functioning for example a psychiatric problem uh, or or we may look on uh, we may look on exposure therapy for in, in used in psychiatry and, and psychological interventions. Maybe the exposure and relearning techniques can be used to treat allergy because allergy is also a misunderstanding of what is dangerous as we have in many psychiatric disorders and over sensitivity. So, so getting rid of this sensitivity, maybe these two, uh, if I may speculate, maybe these two areas of problems can inform each other by just looking on solutions and trying to fit them on another level. I actually have a friend who likes to go to listen to talks in completely different areas just to see if there are like packages of ideas or solutions that could be applied to, to his research. I think that's kind of neat actually. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how big of a role do you think that scientists should play in public policy? And you're a health scientist, so you know how how much do you think that you have sufficient information about the behavioral channels by which health policies translate into health outcomes? Now, but but what do you mean with behavioral channels? So the okay, so people who study, for example, politics or behavioral sciences they learn about concepts such as nudging and numbing and mm -hmm. and how, how how theory should yeah i understand yeah. yeah well i think we're completely off we don't understand anything almost i mean it's really it's uh, we try to uh, really to do our best in in uh, learning something about implementation policies or practices or systems to make things happen but in general it's a it is for us in research, uh, like I have a clinical education, but I don't work, don't work in the clinic. I'm a psychologist. Uh, the, the, the gap is really, it's really, really big. Uh, so it's a slow process and we don't really know why, for example, evidence-based treatments of uh, very common healthcare problems or health problems, mental health problems are not implemented it's so difficult for us to understand why, why, for example, in Sweden, programs and uh, reward structures and economical structures cannot be used to implement effective care. Uh, so we know really little and principles like 
yeah, so so much to learn there. Did you say that the reward structures in 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 Sweden were, weren't? Uh, uh, what did you say about the reward structures in Sweden? Were, were they different from other countries? No, I, I just mean what 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 are what what couldn't we use economical steering to actually make things happen that would that we know uh, would help people. I mean, to get the evidence-based treatments that we know exist, because they don't in many cases. So the gap between the knowledge that we have, the evidence base can be really strong. Uh, for example, for, for treatment of anxiety disorders, we know that it's costly, people suffer, we know that they seek healthcare a lot, we know that they die earlier, we know a lot of this, but people don't get in general the evidence-based treatment. So my question is then, why is it so hard to change society? And for example, by using steering through economical means to implement the knowledge that we actually have. So, so the problem is big, we know little, at least from the research side on how to get out in the clinic. Mm -hmm. Right, so your, your expertise is in uh, psychoneuroendocrinology. And where do you think that that field is, is headed towards um, in terms of qualitative versus quantitative analysis? And, um, you know, we were talking about, about policy, um, you know, so how, how would you, you, don't, you don't know the, the behavioral channels, but um, if, you, if you would just, just talk about the theory of, of the field then, um, where do you think that it's headed in terms of qualitative and quantitative analysis when it comes to the impact of mental stress on inflammatory, metabolic, and hemostatic processes? Is your question where we are heading if we compare qualitative and quantitative yeah. analysis? Yeah, exactly. Is it heading into using, uh, is it... Uh, more uh, heading towards using more quantitative uh, methods of analyzing, uh, for example, study, cohort studies, uh, clinical studies in some some kind of clinical studies, or or non-clinical studies, or is it more popular nowadays to, to do it qualitatively? Uh, well. I hope I understand your question correct, but but uh, the 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 fact is that qualitative studies are extremely seldomly seen at at all. My field then is psychoneuroimmunology. I mean, the endocrine part is part of of that equation, but it's too long to say in most cases. So P and I is what we use for short for most. And here um, we have you can see it sometimes when you need to do like content analysis or early in a stage of a development where for example as we have considered to do a qualitative analysis of like what it is to be sick when you get sick what are the first stages uh, how can people experience and interpret the body there we have not yet but have planned to use qualitative approaches uh, but that is kind of seldom still that people do that. So it's completely dominated by quantitative analysis. Mm -hmm. Would you say that, uh, so if it's all quantitative analysis, what do you think is the cause of the replication crisis in psychology? It's often, often it's blamed on either bad communication and, uh, or it's blamed on like 
the theoretical side of things. So people refer to like Jung and Freud and so, uh, and them and you know the 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 bad stuff in their uh, in their theories. So why do you think that? What is the cause of the replication crisis? Do you, what do you mean with Freud and Jung? Do you mean that they would have uh, the, the, the faulty thinking that they sometimes, yeah. or the faulty conclusions that they sometimes draw from little data? Right. Would that be an explanation? Is is that what you? Or that psychologists are biased by their theories, and that that's why mm -hmm. some people. I, I saw an interview with uh, Daniel Kahneman, and he's he said that it, it was all due to bad communication. Uh, and you know, even though you know the uh, journal publishing and you know article publishing is quite a rigorous process, but he 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 thought that you know uh, studies from different contexts uh, are being being generalized too much due to bad communication. So where where do you stand on the question? Well, uh, bad communication would in my understanding in this context be like the the poor transparency or the 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 lack of skills of communicating what you actually did in a study so that people could replicate it because that's a problem that is a big problem that you actually write things in a way that don't allow uh, full understanding what has been done for example in in uh, methods when collecting, but more problematic in when analyzing. So the the the, the analysis, the step that when that data went through uh, to to organize data and to handle them and to and to do the analysis. There we have many many examples of poor communication like for example in in neuroimaging studies it's a classical observation that it's hard to really understand what has been done uh, in terms of what analysis were done actually to to get the similar results so their bad communication in that sense would be important but i mean the the uh, part of i mean there are big problem like that uh, seldom yeah uh, would have a single explanation, so it's probably multifactorial. So I mean, the 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 cause of the problem that we have with replication is not only in psychology, but it has been acknowledged to large extent in psychology. So it's not it's, it's the rather replication that crisis that we can see in in science. I would argue. And uh, many aspects work for this. One thing is that we have a, a career structure uh, and also award structure that is really faulty in science. That we are, uh, we can, we are kind of collecting merits in terms of number of publications, and uh, we are rewarded in our careers for actually producing papers with high impact factor publication in high impact factor journals rather than producing knowledge so the process is kind of the 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 process of producing knowledge is measured by bibliometrics like the number of papers like the how good the papers the journals are that we publish in etc etc 
So that's a big problem because that actually fools directly the uh, a bias. So we are not rewarded or rewarded things because we actually question our own data. So that is one problem. Um, I think poor understanding of, of the statistics and the importance of high power are other examples. Also other examples are misunderstanding of what is a, a poor a failure to replicate because uh, findings shouldn't replicate every time because there is a random factor and because there also is a power issue in the replication. So if we don't get the statistically significant result in the replication attempt, it's not a, a refute of the first finding. It's part of, of actually the, the, what is expected. So I think this is a, some points that are important for the so-called replication crisis. Right. Okay, so moving on, do you think that it is important or more important to have a model of human psychology that is as close as, uh, as possible to some kind of empirical truth? Or do you think that it is, it is more important for the model to be, to, be more, uh, to be effective in terms of getting us to a desired outcome? So we spoke of uh, Freud and Jung and they, their theories maybe had some shaky ground at times, but mm. it was quite efficient in some, in some contexts. Yeah, where, where do you stand on that? Is it important yeah. for it to be closer to the truth? But can you explain it more? What, what would it, I mean, what would be the desired outcome for Jung and Freud be? Yeah. I don't know, the desired outcome, it's hard <laughs> to explain. Different people who used the theories had different desires. Some had desires to, to reach philosophical conclusions and some wanted to use it clinically in some, in, in some sense, uh, some clinical psychologists looked up to it at that time, at least, and some psychi psychiatrists looked up to their theories. So, yeah, the desired outcome could be, could could be health. It could be philosophical questions. Do, well, would you mean that it would be a useful outcome? Yeah. And useful here could be then that it's not true or as close to the tr truth as we could imagine, but rather that it would tell something that would make people, whatever, behave or believe yeah. an explanatory model. If I interpret it correctly, then it is of course most important to have it as close as possible to the, the truth as we can study it empirically. Okay, so even if that would lead to worse consequences, do you, do you still stand? Like, let's say that on the short term, then you, you mm. tell uh, you are the primary minister and you tell the population that, I don't know, someone is, Russia is attacking and then, uh, I don't know, havoc breaks out or something. Would you, uh, would you tell the population or would you avoid to tell them and try to... That's a too big step, too big question for a, a simple professor to, in psychology to answer uh, with that. But if you look on it generally, we will have a closer estimation of truth, the, of reality, if we ground it on empirical 
data and I mean it's a more tricky process because it's not effective in the same way in, in persuading people in understanding things or persuading people to behave in a certain way always. I mean one example is the stress field where there are so many simple explanations that are attractive to people because they seem reasonable but they are really not empirically based or sound and the problem for me who try at least tries to uh, to communicate a reasonable version of what i perceive as the truth i mean that the the facts that we have uh, i have a problem because it's not a always a, uh, easy to communicate that and you can just look at a bookstore at any at any airport or wherever and you can see how it is to how easy it is and attractive it is to sell um, a model that is not really based on fact but on a story that you can tell so scientists are really uh, competing with the storytellers and we suffer because we are so poor storytellers in actually conveying the facts that we try to to uh, communicate. Right. Um, okay. So, seeing this from the lens of alternative medicine, how would you describe the worth of alternative medicine and placebo medicine, such as Chinese medicine, Japanese medicine, and homeopathy, in relation to allopathic medicine? It's also a really big question, and uh, if you, if you, if I don't use the word placebo medicine here, but think of of alternative or like traditional medicine, like these systems of Chinese medicine, etc. I mean, uh, I do think that they have some certain advantages and some apparent disadvantages and problems and among the, the advantages is that they are kind of holistic they speak in a nice way to people uh, the providers are often using more time for analysis they have a, like a model that includes many aspects of life and they have explanations for many things that may work at least in my understanding may often but definitely not always through placebo mechanisms like faith truth touch attention uh, being calmed uh, perhaps changing behavior through this contact that's really effective in some ways and for example like a puncture is a seems to be a fantastic way to induce a non-specific effect because we have the contact between the provider and the client we have the including often touch uh, we have the the uh, the kind of the old history of acupuncture we have this really uh, clear and salient feelings when the needle touches us or goes penetrates the skin so we have a whole package through which non-specific factors seems to be communicated 
And when comparing real acupuncture with placebo acupuncture, there is not much a difference. There is, so acupuncture has empirical support for some con conditions or symptoms, but in definitely the most studies, there is no difference between placebo acupuncture and real acupuncture. And placebo acupuncture is then, then it's not hitting the right spot, not the placebo point, the acupuncture point, according to theory, and it's not penetrating the skin. It's only the belief that it is penetrating the skin by the patient that seems to be with this whole package then inducing the good methods. So, I mean, uh, we have many, many good aspects of these theories and uh, health systems from China and Japan, etc. But there are, of course, I mean, because they are not based on what we know about the human body or on chemistry, etc. So I think in most cases we would have more effective medicine if we have both these aspects taken care of. The care process, attention, expectation, trust, etc. And something that works well without the placebo components. Hmm. Okay, so do you think that, so uh, in many cases, people or, or in the past, you know, religious notions had, had it was given more, uh, were given more, given more importance in, in, in traditional medicine and in allopathic medicine, whatever allopathic medicine was at that time. In the, in the 19th century, for example, even in Sweden, I think that people always, um, you know, for example, death was more accepted uh, and stuff like that. So do you think that even now that allopathic medical models should take, take into account religious notions, such as the one stating that unethical acts can give rise to physical illness? How, how would that happen? How should we take that into account? I mean, what, what do you mean more specifically? Then instead of a biomarker, you could have some behavioral mar marker for, for different uh, illnesses. So you could say that, okay, so you, in the past that could have been like, so you stole, you, you stole or you didn't go to the church or something like that. And then God is angry with you. And now you have this disease or something, something that is comparable with, with that. And I, I think, I'm not sure I understand this question. I, I, I actually suggest that we skip this question. It seems to span over so many difficult things right. that would lead us astray. So I suggest we skip that one. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what are your views on epiphenomenal, okay, what are your views on epiphenomenal, phenomenalism? Okay, I don't know. I have forgotten what I meant by this question, but but the explanatory gap. This is about uh, yeah. Okay, so what are your views on the explanatory gap? Uh, do you think that it is bridgeable? So the explanatory gap is you know the soul and the the uh, the supposed soul and the 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 body, the physical body. You know the gap between. So 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 some people argue that even if we would know what every every neuron is doing, what, what, you know we would know all the workings of the brain in and out in detail that wouldn't tell us anything about our consciousness 
or anything about our subjective experiences on top of the mere primitive side of the brain or the more, the mere impulses. So what are, what are, what are your views on that matter? Well, I think it's, it is of course very tricky and demanding to get a good explanation of subtle feelings in terms of the physical, um, the physical uh, processes that seemingly underlie the feelings, the emotions, whatever it is. I mean, the, the level of understanding we have now of how the brain or other aspects of the body actually work is really, really far from these subtle uh, feelings or notions. But still, uh, I think in principle, these no these feelings would not exist. I mean, they they it is they are based on physical processes, which is uh, in my simplified view self-evident that you don't have these experiences without the physical processes. But it's not uh, an effective level of explanation to study them. I mean, to study whatever um, a religious feeling or a certain intent, it's not really effective most often to discuss them in uh, biomedical or, or really reductionistic ways. You should do it also, but you shouldn't only do that because it's not effective. So I think it is imbridgeable in principle. And <clears throat> uh, I mean, I would argue then to use different levels of observation of a certain phenomenon. I mean, if we, if we are interested in a certain behavior or a behavior problem, this would be related to society perhaps in some ways. It, and then we should talk about societal changes, not to cause this problem, for example, or to have um, uh, surroundings that would help people not to express this problem or develop this problem, so to speak. We have the psychological individual level that is effective in explaining my intentions with doing something or the way I could try to change my behavior, whatever. We have the brain level, the neurochemical level, the whatever atomistic level you could go to, but they would be good at explaining different things. But nonetheless, it's definitely based, the behaviors are biology, so to speak. You cannot speak about communication between biology and psychology because psychology is biology and behavior is biology. It's only different levels of observation. Right. So if I understood you correctly, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if I understood correctly, you said that it's inefficient to mix uh, non-reductionistic things that are just like religion and stuff and so sociology with, with biology. Uh, why do you think it's ineffective? Well, I think it is, It is. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure I understood your question, but I tried to respond anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think it is effective to combine the different perspectives, but I don't think it is reasonable that they are like different things. I mean, uh, the the what we perceive as a soul or the mind or whatever, it's stuff. It's monism in that way. It is something that that happens in the physical world. 
but it's not effective always to talk about a feeling in terms of neurochemicals or quarks or whatever level would go, go to. So my point is that we need different levels, but it's not always uh, effective to address an aspect of a phenomenon at a too reductionistic or a too uh, uh, big levels, so to speak. I, I'm not sure if I'm making myself clear here, but, That's but clear. I think it's it. I think it's bridgeable, but it, it will happen very slowly. And some aspects, I would be very surprised if they would be <laughs> resolved by like basic science. I, I'm pessimistic in that, but I must just say that in, in neuroscience, it happens also that we with these simplified methods that we use, actually study kind of tricky things like feelings of disgust or uh, sometimes intentions actually, or study brain correlates to perception or things like that, that can be on the subtle kind, but still possible to address in neuroscience, for example. Mm. So it's getting, it's getting somewhere. Right. So I, uh, I saw a meme some weeks ago where the where it was said that medicine is applied chemistry, chemistry is applied biology, biology is applied physics, and physics is applied math. There was some I don't know if I have forgot forgotten some some component in, yeah, in the right. chain, but yeah. so and you mentioned that it's not always efficient to to you know mix the levels or you know to yeah but in which cases do you think that that it is efficient to do it i don't know if i have a rule of thumb for that but i mean what i can just try to respond by giving an example of what i try to do in my research and where i mix levels when i can and that is like for example i, I study then the the feeling of sickness like uh, what it is, what determines if we rate our sickness or our health level at a certain level and, and biological mechanisms for that. And I mean, then I, I think it's reasonable to mix the biological level with like, uh, like for example, inflammatory products that impact on the brain. There I have good data from animals, others, animal research that I try to apply on humans, I mean, I apply the understanding. I, uh, I use neuroimaging to understand this, like what parts or what networks are the brain are involved in evaluating bodily changes and making you feel sick. But I think that I also really need the big questions like uh, this super big question I talked about about self-rated health, like what is your general state of health? Uh, I need, uh, when I can also data from epidemiology or not only experimental research that I do, I try to combine levels like, for example, if I'm interested in, in, uh, in uh, inflammation in related to a certain behavior, a certain feeling. I could have the idea that if you have higher inflammation at a certain point in life, it could also show up in increased risk for developing a certain disease. So if I study it in small 
experiments, I can think, well, if this is important, I could also use the population material. So I look in registers. Is it true that if you have inflammatory activation at a certain point in life that you increase risk? So then I try to mix level from the population level down to the more experimental level. So my view is mixing perspectives, techniques and levels will help me understand the problem. Some psychologists are really old fashioned in this, that they think that psychology should be pure and they talk about something called biological psychology, which I don't know what it is. For me, it doesn't make sense. I, I have no idea what they are talking about, why you should restrain yourself to only one level of observation. Right. Okay, so in terms of clinical work, to which extent do you think that clinical health workers have to devolve patients in numbers and bodies, and to which extent do you think that they can reason from, from first principles as opposed to memorizing other people's empirical observations? Uh, can, can, you, can you explain in other words what you... So now you, we, talked about, we talked about how you, you combine different levels mm. in, in your research. So right now, you know, clinical health workers, sometimes they have to, like epidemiologists, they all obviously have to devolve patients into numbers and, mm -hmm. you know, clinicians, they have to, they have to, to trust on the re research that has been done by, by people like, for example, epidemiologists. And then, because they don't have time to, to reason from first principles again and again, and, uh, and you know, they, they, they just have to rely to some extent on other people's empirical observations. So how, do, do you think that the, the extent to, uh, at which they are doing that today is, is the right <laughs> extent? Or do you think that they should increase it or decrease it? Or could you say something about the, uh, the degree to which that should be done? Yeah, uh, I, I think like uh, with, with it, I, I think as a uh, healthcare worker, one really needs to use common sense and uh, what information we get from like our bodily feelings to some extent, like what to, to well, exam for example, to establish rapport, to, to get uh, contact with the person, which is important for many reasons. And for this, you need to use your everyday human knowledge about and the, the gut feeling they have, so you cannot dismiss that. But I think it's, it is also a problem, and I think that problem is actually bigger than people believe, that people think that they can have much better judgments than they can. They are overconfident in their own skill, and uh, like uh, having half a treatment and then changing to another treatment for another problem because it feels like for the feels right for the clinician and there is actually data suggesting that when implementing good uh, like when implementing uh, uh, treatment principles and uh, what we have uh, uh, the, the advice we have or the evidence base we have when implementing treatments, uh, one of seen in large materials, but that 
areas or therapists that perform less good actually to a larger extent go off piste that it means in this case that they actually trust too much their feelings that now we should do something else i feel that i can help this person and then they don't stick to the treatment protocol so i think actually being influenced by these numbers will in many many cases help the individual better than going for these first principles okay right so last last question then so we have talked about devolving patients to numbers and bodies and we've talked about allopathic medicine versus alternative medicine uh, so we, we we often hear hearing in you know i i read, I read a, a book called uh, reimagining global health sorry uh, reimagining global health written by paul uh -huh. farmer you know the guy who, who founded uh, partners in health uh, -huh. uh so and you know we often hear people in med medical school they also have to hear that cultural sensitivity is always important as a clinician to be culturally sensitive yes uh, and um, it could also be important in implementation of ethical values when including patients in decision making mm -hmm. and uh, aside from partners in health i saw an example of this by the founder of filani who is uh, i think quite uh, popular in the amongst the researchers in sweden and she said that uh, you know she she really integrated with the society in a different way and that yeah. she, she experienced positive outcomes of that. So do you think that the faith problems that Western health workers have experienced, um, for example, when they, uh, during the construction of the Panama Canal and the anti-vaccine movements that have arisen uh, 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 in, for example, the US, have their root cause in the fundamental problems of allopathic medicine? And if so, where do you think that those problems influence well, uh, their problem? Yeah, uh, if uh, if I this is a big question, yeah. <laughs> right? But if if uh, if some problems are rooted in problems that we have in allopathic medicine, if that is correctly perceived, uh, at least part of the question, I, I would definitely agree. I think we have. Uh, I mean, we can really blame ourselves if I should count myself as part of allopathic medicine, I guess I am, or school medicine. Uh, I mean, there are so obvious uh, gaps, not only in knowledge, but also in terms of taking care, in, uh, in terms of looking on different aspects of life, of actually missing things that would be very natural for other health systems to to do in a better way, actually to see the person, to have the contact, to convey warm, empathic feeling, etc., etc. Uh, we have, we are not really good at that. And that is, of course, part of the, uh, the why people are so suspicious in many cases against, uh, towards allopathic menacing or, or yeah, school medicine, like, yeah. I mean, if you, we, we are, of course, uh, we have big troubles with, like, uh, with uh, the big pharmaceutical companies with their uh, interests, with uh, many aspects of economy, etc., etc., etc. But many people actually think that people are cruel in 
allopathic medicine and uh, that they want to do things that are not good uh, in a way that is much exaggerated as I feel. We have many problems, but it's not that bad as large groups may see and may think that it is. And part of that I do agree is, is for ourselves to blame on. Right. Okay, so thank you, Mats, for speaking with me. It was a thank pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Nice speaking to you.